Chapter 9 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. Chapter 9. A general assent followed Mr. Bilderjik's remarks, to which, however, the farmer made no reply. A silence of some minutes ensued, which was broken by George. Mr. Balin, he said, I was much interested in the history you gave us the other day of the colony and King Chaka and his brother Dingan, but all that you told us occurred forty years ago. I should like to know something of what has happened since. Well, the last thing I told you of was the murder of Peter Retief and his followers, said Mr. Balin, wasn't it? Well, the natural consequences ensued. There was war for some years between the whites and the blacks. The English settlers invaded Zululand and carried off a quantity of women, children, and cattle. But they were attacked by 10,000 Zulus, and a hot fight followed. The English shot them down in such numbers that they formed high banks over which their comrades had to climb. In spite of this, they advanced and overpowered their enemies by mere force of numbers. Ah, interposed Hardy. And it would be a good job if our English generals remembered that fact. They persist in despising their enemies and may take a lesson from the Dutchmen, who are too wise to do so. But go on, Balin. I beg pardon for interrupting. The Zulus, resumed the other, drove the English beyond the Tagela, overran Natal, and for the second time turned it into a desert. The colonists took refuge in an island in the bay. There they were personally safe, but their houses and goods were utterly destroyed and their cattle driven off. We had contrived to take away with us everything of value that could be carried off to the island, and no great injury was done to the farmhouse and buildings, but all the cattle, horses, oxen, sheep, and goats were driven away. If we had not recovered them a few months afterwards, I should have had to begin life again. How did you manage to recover them, sir? asked Margetts. Through my brother-in-law, Cornelius Scheulen. He had joined the main body of Dutch settlers from the Cape, and was a leading man among them, and a friend of the Dutch General Pretorius. They found it necessary to go to war with Dingaan, and there was a pitched battle in which the Dutch were the conquerors. I agree with Mr. Rivers that the Dutch are no cowards, but that they think that a whole skin is better than a slashed one, and they conduct their campaigns accordingly. I was present at the battle myself, having gone up to the Boer camp about my cattle. The natives outnumbered us ten to one, I should think, and they fought as bravely as men could fight, but we gained a decisive victory with very little loss. How did you manage it, sir? inquired George. I have heard that the Dutch have very little discipline in their armies. Very little, but their tactics are the thing. When they knew that a battle was imminent, they loggered their wagons together and stationed their foot soldiers in and behind them. The mounted men, of which their force principally consisted, waited at some distance until the Zulu assault on the wagons had begun. Then they opened fire upon them with their rifles, which killed great numbers, and at last obliged them to turn off and attack them. They waited until the Zulus were almost but not quite within what was called Azagay distance, and then fired volley after volley into them. When the Zulus advanced nearer, they galloped off a little distance and fired as before, repeating the maneuver until the blacks were obliged to retire, with immense loss of killed and wounded, while hardly a man on their own side was touched. It wasn't much better with the Zulus on their attack on the logger. They managed to fling a few Azagays into and under the wagons, but the Boers fired upon them under almost complete shelter and shot them down by hundreds. Dingaan was obliged to make peace and restore the cattle, mine among the rest. 
That must have been near about the end of Dingan's reign, observed the Swedish clergyman. Yes, in less than two years afterwards, the Dutch deposed Dingan and made his brother Panda king. Dingan fled to the Amaswazi, and they put him to death. Panda had a long reign of more than 30 years, and during that period there was very little fighting with the European settlers. He was a different kind of character altogether from his two brothers and loved ease and quiet, but I believe his disposition was almost as cruel as theirs. You are right, sir, said Mr. Bildercheck. He was as bloodthirsty as either of them, though he shed the blood of his own people only. He would inflict the most frightful penalties for the smallest offenses. If one of his oxen was overdriven or hurt, he would order the cow herd to be impaled. Even for slighter offenses than this, if the smallest thing occurred to annoy or cross him, he would sentence the offender to death, and his soldiers were always ready to execute his commands without hesitation. His barbarity drove his subjects away in such numbers that Natal was almost peopled with them. He was a weak ruler, however, and for the last twenty years of his reign, his son Catawayo, who is now on the throne, was virtually king. Catawayo, observed George, ah, I want to know about him. We hear plenty in England. There is great alarm, is there not, that he will invade this country? I heard them talking of it at Meritzburg. There is great alarm, no doubt, said the farmer, and it is no great wonder, seeing that Natal has twice been invaded and devastated by the Zulus. But I do not myself believe that he will ever cross the Tugela, unless he himself is first attacked, and drives his enemies before him. But I should like to know what you think about him, Hardy, living so near to him as you once did. Your opinion must be valuable. Yes, I lived in Zululand for several years after I left the army, said Hardy, and I saw and heard enough of Ketaweo during that time to form a decided opinion about him. And what was that opinion, Mr. Hardy, inquired George. If I remember right, the English agreed to place him on the throne on condition that the lawless and indiscriminate shedding of human blood should be put a stop to, and that no one should be put to death until after a trial and sentence. There are those that say that this compact was faithfully kept to. And it was, said Hardy, so long as Ketaweo was insecure of his throne. At first this was the case, and he knew that the best hope of establishing his power lay in the support of the English. For the first few years of his reign, therefore, he did, as a rule, loyally carry out the promises he had given. But those who watched him most closely know that he never intended to be a tributary sovereign to anyone. From the first he revived and developed his uncle Chaka's military policy. He reinstated the old regiments and formed new ones, carefully choosing men to lead them who were qualified to carry out his designs. He rebuilt the military crawls and obliged his soldiers to live unmarried, as his uncle had done. Aye, interposed George, as Sultan Amaroth did when he instituted the Janissaries. I dare say you are right, sir, said Hardy, though I never heard of him. Well, the only difference Ketaweo made in his dealings with his men was that he armed them with guns. In all other respects, it was the reproduction of Chaka's army, the same enormous numbers, the same close and jealous discipline, the same absolute devotion to the king's will, without hesitation or question. If Ketaweo had ever intended to be faithful to his engagements with the English, of what use could this enormous and costly army have been to him? It is ridiculous to say it would be needed to put down the Tongas or the Swazis, or even to resist the aggressions of the Boers. There is but one use to which he could have intended to put it, and that is to drive the white man out of the land. Well, there are many, at all events, that think that, observed Balin. You think, then, that he is going to declare war? I doubt his doing that, said Hardy, but I think he will provoke the English to attack him, to invade Zululand, in fact. 
Why should he want them to do that? asked Reggie. He will then fight greatly at an advantage, said Hardy. In fact, he thinks that he sees his way to victory. I don't say I agree with him in that. Indeed, I don't. But there is a good deal to be said on his side. Zululand is a difficult country for an army to traverse. He knows every inch of it, and they do not. The climate is often very unhealthy to white men. Disease would probably break out among them, if he could keep them any time there, whereas his own men are thoroughly inured to it. His numbers, again, are vastly in excess of theirs, and if he could attack them when off their guard, he might inflict frightful loss upon them. All these chances are in his favor, and he knows them well. In fact, he is trying to pick a quarrel, said Reggie. And he may succeed, added Hardy. Indeed, he checked himself and went on. Then as to his natural disposition, you ask me what I thought about that too. I think he is just like his ancestors, quite as merciless and bloodthirsty and even more crafty. It was said that during the first few years of his reign he never put anyone to death unless he had really been guilty of some great offense and that there was always a regular trial and conviction. How much truth there is in that you may judge from what I am now going to tell you. When I first settled in Zululand there was a Wesleyan missionary living near me whose name was Garnett. He was a very good man, and the people about there respected him much. He had made several converts, amongst others an Induna named Uzumanzi, a man of means and some local importance. Now it is certain that Catueo did not like the missionaries. One can very well understand why. The entire submission to his pleasure, right or wrong, which was the first thing he insisted upon, was a thing which no Christian could fall in with. Is it not so, Mr. Bilderjik? Of course he could not, assented the clergyman. A Christian's first law is obedience to God's commandments, not man's. If the two came into collision, the obedience to human authority must give way. Exactly so, sir, pursued Hardy. Well, then there is no difficulty in understanding Ketaweo's aversion to the missionaries. But at the same time, he knew that the missionaries were strongly upheld by the English and that any persecution of them on religious grounds would be sternly resented. Ketaweo therefore sent a message to Mr. Garnett, desiring him to pay a visit to the royal crawl. He wanted, he said, to talk to him about the good things which he taught the people. Mr. Garnett was only half deceived. The king really might have been moved by some desire to know the truth, but it was far more likely that he was only pretending such a feeling, in order to get him entirely into his own power. Uzumanzi earnestly advised him not to go. He said he knew that the king had been greatly provoked by his conversion, regarding him, as he did, as a valuable servant lost to him. Ketaweo would either banish him from the country or, what was more likely, accuse him of some imaginary crime and put him to death for it. But Mr. Garnett resolved to go. He said there was a hope of doing a great work for his master, and he was not to be deterred by the danger to himself. I offered to accompany him, as I thought my presence might be some protection. You see, though I was living in Zululand, I was employed by the Natal government to collect taxes from the native chiefs every year. As an agent of the British government, I knew Ketaweo would treat me with consideration, and possibly Mr. Garnett on my account. Well, you were right, I expect, observed Balin. I was to some extent, assented Hardy. As soon as I made it understood that I was an officer in the employ of the governor of Natal, there was a difference in the demeanor of the councillors towards me and Mr. Garnett, too. A civil reception was given us, and a good hut assigned for our accommodation. Then there followed a long delay, and at last I was told I was to be sent with letters to Mr. Sir Henry Bulwer, and the next day I set out. 
attended by two of Cataweo's soldiers. I suspected at the time, and subsequent events confirmed my opinion, that the king wanted to get rid of me because I stood in the way of his carrying out his designs against Mr. Garnett. I was no sooner gone than he was informed there was an accusation made against him of practicing witchcraft. The king would inquire into the matter himself. This I learned from the Zulu who was sent with me, but what ensued I could never learn with any certainty. Mr. Garnett, I believe, underwent a kind of mock trial, being charged with bewitching several persons. He was found guilty and was sentenced to be banished from the country. Ketaweo had possibly thought that it would be dangerous to put him publicly to death, but it came eventually to the same thing. Mr. Garnett set out, in company with two Zulus, who were directed to convey him to Delagoa Bay, whither his wife and children had already been sent, but he never reached his destination. His guides came back with the story that he had been killed by a lion. The general belief was that he had been murdered and his body left to be devoured by the hyenas. But that was not the worst, resumed Hardy after a pause. There was something like a trial in his instance, and besides, he might really have been killed by a wild beast, though the circumstances were full of suspicion. The usage of Uzumanzi was a much grosser outrage. No charge was made against him, nor did he receive so much as a hint that the king was displeased with him. But the Izamazi, or prophets, whom to do them justice both Chaka and Dingan had discouraged, had gained considerable influence with Ketaweo and they resented Uzumanzi's conversion, and more particularly when they found that he still adhered to his new creed after Mr. Garnett's disappearance. "'I wonder he didn't leave the country,' remarked Ernest Balin. "'He was advised to do so,' said Hardy, "'but he was a brave man, and said he had done no wrong, and that he put his trust in the God he had newly learned. Nothing was heard about him for some time, but one morning, quite early, I was roused by a number of Zulus living in an adjoining crawl.' who told me that the king had sent an impi to eat up Uzumanzi. His house had already been surrounded, and himself and everyone belonging to him, even to the infants in arms, azagade. The cattle were being driven off at that moment. In an hour or two, Uzumanzi's crawl had been entirely destroyed by fire, and the ashes scattered in all directions. In a short time, not a trace was left of his habitation. And was no complaint made of such an outrage? asked Margetts. Who was there to make it? inquired Hardy. Uzumanzi's relatives, if there were any of them left, were too thankful to have escaped notice, and were little likely to do anything that might cause them to share his fate. Perhaps you think that I might have made some representations to the governor of Natal, but I had already incurred suspicion and received a hint to keep quiet. The government were unwilling at that time to come to a rupture with Ketaweo. I knew, too, that I should be required to produce witnesses, and not one of the Zulus, who knew the facts, could have been induced by love or money to say a word on the subject. Most probably they would have said, if they had been brought into a court of justice, that Uzumanzi's crawl had caught fire accidentally. No, he knew in this instance that he was safe, and you may be assured that, let him profess what he will, there is no possibility of inducing Ketaweo to respect the rights of his own subjects or those of other nations except by putting him down by force of arms. And as for that, he appeared to be about to add something more, but checked himself and addressed his host. It must be time for us to go to bed, Mr. Belichick, he said. We have a long day's work before us tomorrow and must start early. I suppose you mean to set off for Help Makar the first thing in the morning? Help Makar, repeated the farmer. No, I shall not set out for that in the morning, if I do at all tomorrow. You have forgotten that we have left one of our wagons in a damaged condition on the other side of the moy. To be sure, so I had. How stupid of me. 
But if we are not going to be fellow travelers tomorrow, I should like to have a little talk with you, Balin, before we turn in for the night. Will you walk with me to the hotel in the village? I can say what I want while we are on the way there. Mr. Balin assented. They said good night to their host and stepped out into the porch, and thence passed through the little garden into the wide street of the picturesque little town, with its white houses, each shaded with its green veranda, and its double row of fruit trees already beginning to spread a pleasant shade. At that hour it was quite deserted, and Hardy presently began. I thought it better not to tell you my reason for riding over from Umbalosa to meet you. I did not want to alarm the ladies. What has happened? asked Balin anxiously. No injury has been done to your property or your servants, said Hardy, but beyond Umbalosa, from a little distance outside the town, as far as Utrecht, or nearly as far, there is nothing but ruin and destruction. The storm two days ago, do you mean, suggested Balin. No, this storm has been of man's making, said Hardy. Umbellini, you know him? Everyone knows him too well, was the answer. If he fell into my hands, I should be disposed to make short work with him. He wouldn't come off much better in mine, said Hardy, if I caught him red-handed, as the saying is. He pretends to act independently of Ketaweo, but nobody doubts he is really under his orders. Well, he has made a raid on the district we have been speaking about, with a large force of Zulus. They have burnt to the ground every house in it, driven off the whole of the cattle, and murdered every man, woman, and child that came in their way. The district between Utrecht and Umbalosa, said Balin. What can have made Umbellini, or rather Cataweo, choose that? Why, that is the very district which was in dispute, and which the English have awarded him. That is strange. Well, the English have awarded it to him, no doubt, assented Hardy. But they didn't give it to him out and out, as he expected, perhaps. The rights of the settlers living in were to be respected. Probably Cataweo wishes to show his contempt for their decision. At all events, there is no doubt that he is showing studied disregard of Sir Henry Bulwer's demands. There is this business of the violation of the English territory and the murder of the two women by Serayo. His answers about that amount really to an insult. It is what I have long supposed, that, although he will not himself attack the English, he wants to provoke them to attack him. I suppose it must be so, and the English will be driven to declare war. But about this raid by Umbellini, how far has it spread? Is it likely to spread further? Will it reach Umbelosa? It has not got there yet, and I don't think it will. The place is incapable of resisting an attack, but I think Umbellini has already got as much spoil as he can carry away. Besides, the English forces are advancing to Rourke's Drift, and he will avoid any collision with them. If Umbelosa is not attacked, we might rest as usual on our way there. It is one day's journey, you know, from Horner's Crawl. Rest? What, at Rogers Station? Dykeman's Hollow? Yes, we always rest there. I know Mr. Rogers is away in England, but we should be made welcome all the same. Not a doubt of it, but you would find his station deserted. When they heard of Umbellini's approach, his headmen packed his wagons with his household goods and valuables and drove away his cattle. And where have his wagons and cattle been driven to, inquired Mr. Balin. To my station? To Horner's Crawl? No. Roger's men thought of going there, but the cattle and the contents of the wagons would be attempting plunder. Umbellini, who is notorious for his rapacity, might have sent some of his men in pursuit. No, they have gone off to Rourke's Drift, to be under the protection of the British force assembling there. And that is where Mrs. Balin and all your party and wagons must go, if you take my advice, as soon, that is, as you have recovered the one which has been left on the bank of the Mui. The troops assembling at Rourke's Drift. Ah, so you said just now. 
then what we heard at Durban must be true, and an ultimatum has been sent to Catawayo. So I am told, and that thirty days have been allowed him in which to send an answer. If he does not do so, Zululand is to be invaded at three different points. One column, under Colonel Pearson, is to cross the lower Tugela and move on by Ikawi. A second, under Colonel Evelyn Wood, is to enter by crossing the Blood River near Kambula. The third, commanded by Lord Chelmsford himself, was set out from Rourke's Drift and penetrate to the interior by Isendalwana Hill. If Catawayo falls back, as they expect, before them, the columns will meet at Ulundi. There he must fight them or surrender. That is what I am told, but of course it is only rumor. Well, Catawayo certainly intends to fight us, and I hope the plan of operations may be successful. But it does not concern me, and I am anxious to be out of it. Can't we go on resting at any place where we can find shelter, at Umvelosa or elsewhere, and get to Horner's Crawl? There we shall be well out of it all. I really don't think you can, Balin. I don't think you'd be troubled by Umbellini and his Zulus. As soon as Wood and his men move to their station on the Blood River, he is sure to take himself off, and will not return while Wood and his troops remain in that neighborhood. But the country is full of lawless characters of all kinds. Escaped convicts, bush robbers, and adventurers who have lost everything at the diamond fields. There is no legal authority to keep them in control, no sufficient authority, at all events, and they would murder anyone for the value of a tobacco pipe. It would not be safe for the ladies of your party, at all events, to attempt the journey, unless with a military escort, until order has been restored. And I suppose there is a general flight to Rourke's Drift? There were a great many on their way there yesterday. I passed young Vander Hayden and his sister, accompanied by Frank Moritz, as I rode out. Vander Hayden and Moritz? Why, they were in Durban a week or so ago. Yes, but they traveled faster than you. They reached Vander Hayden's house, Bushman's Drift, as it is called, just in time to see it all in a blaze and the Zulus plundering and killing everyone they encountered. Henrik and the others had just time to escape. If they had got there a few hours earlier, they would have been shot or assegade too. And they have gone now to Rourke's Drift? Yes. I exchanged a few words with Moritz. He was hot enough about what he had witnessed, but he was calmness itself to Vander Hayden. He did not say a word. But he looked like a man who meant to do something terrible when the time came. I fancy someone of whom he was very fond must have been killed, but I did not like to ask. I gathered, however, that he was not going to Rourke's Drift for protection, but for revenge on those miscreants. Bitterly and notoriously as he dislikes the English, he means to join their army as a mounted volunteer. The Lord have mercy on the Zulus that come in his way, for he will have none. He is an experienced soldier and will be a valuable recruit. Well, said Balin, I don't know that I can greatly blame him. I shall not be at all surprised if a great many should be found to follow his example. It is certainly high time that a stop should be put to these atrocities. Well, Hardy, I shall follow your advice. I shall send off the wagon with Mrs. Balin and Clara with Matamo to take care of them tomorrow morning, and I shall follow with the other as soon as we have it got out of the moy. I suppose the road to Rourke's Drift is open and safe, is it not? Well, for it to be that, Umbellini and his Zulus must have withdrawn. I expect to hear with certainty about that tomorrow morning, and will come down and tell you about it before I start. Mrs. Balin must not set off until the road is safe. Many thanks. By the by, I forgot to ask whether you have suffered much loss yourself from this impi. Not very much, thank you. I had fortunately sold off my stock a short time ago, and I had the money with me. My servants also got notice in time and made their escape, 
with most of the articles of any real value. The house has been burnt and wrecked, but I dare say I shall get compensation when the war is over. Meanwhile, I mean to follow Vander Hayden's example and take service with the mounted volunteers. End of chapter 9. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA.